Good day and welcome to the Climate Change Therapy Podcast, a product of BlockRadius.net, your most trusted online media outlet for urban planning and unrelated topics. Today is Thursday, May 21st, 2020. The coronavirus curve is flattening here in the United States with many states planning to reopen this upcoming Memorial Day weekend with New York and New Jersey opening beaches to name a few new developments. Meanwhile, globally, coronavirus cases continue to spike exponentially, especially in Brazil, India, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, to name a few countries on the wrong side of the curve right now. Just yesterday, May 20th, there were 100,000 new cases announced, the highest single day total since late April. So the global curve remains upwards. Uh, There's been over 5 million confirmed cases worldwide. As of tonight, 330,000 deaths led by 1.6 million cases in the United States, along with 95,000 deaths, 1,300 deaths just today, about half the deaths on 9-11. So there's that. But sooner or later, this will all pass, we hope, and all we'll have left to deal with then is climate change and whatever that entails. In need of therapy, so am I. Well, good thing, because my guest here tonight is one Danny Santa, a psychiatrist, an undisclosed hospital in New York City, the global epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak, who's been a hero to all of us for his work in the hospitals these last few months. Mad respects and gratitude to he and all the frontline workers out there. But first, we've got to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Roland Cases, the most rocking suitcases on wheels. Roland Cases, whether you're smuggling 24 rolls of toilet paper and six gallons of hand sanitizer across the Hudson River, or your lease is ending next week, you've got nowhere to go, and you're scrambling to fit all your most prized possessions into a single travel accessory. Rolling cases are the suitcases on wheels for you and your life's journey. Rolling cases. And with that, ladies, gentlemen, listeners, old and new, I bring you Danny Sant. Danny, Danny Santa, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us this evening. Hey, I'm glad to be virtually with you uh, on this podcast. I feel like it's been a long time coming. Yeah, yeah. I'm in Philadelphia. You're in in New York. Uh, you tell us about your day. Um, I I know you're working in the hospitals in New York, so we definitely want to hear about that. What was the day like for you today? Yeah. So. Um, For the past week, I've been back on the inpatient psychiatry unit. Um, I had a a little hiatus where they, you know, they've been pulling um, doctors from other uh, departments, uh, from other programs. Uh, They've also been pulling uh, volunteers, you know, from uh, Samaritan's Purse. You know, they've been taking as, as much help as they can. And so they were... Uh, they ended up pulling like 50% of the psychiatry department to work out or to, uh, to work on um, COVID floors. And uh, my two weeks was, uh, was the last two weeks. And I worked um, Saturday, Sunday uh, for those two weeks. And, you know, luckily things have been getting a lot better. You know, um, the cases are down, the ICU admissions are down. So I feel like I kind of, um, I missed sort of the, the things w- when things were super hectic, um, mm. but it's uh, it's quite 
I mean, it's quite an experience. I mean, it's not like anything that we were, we've been prepared for. So, so as a psychiatrist in the COVID unit now, what exactly, what exact tasks do they have you doing? You're not, you're not prescribing medication still you're doing. Yeah. So we, um, they essentially treat us like we're just any other, you know, physician because, you know, a psychiatrist, you do go through four years of medical school and get the, you know, the comprehensive training, um, in, in dealing with not just psychiatric illness, but, you know, uh, any kind of medical illness as well. So, um, you know, we were tasked to just work like, like any other internist, um, uh, treating patients either who uh, were acutely ill or patients who you know may have come to the hospital for um, you know just for let's say uh, diabetes or heart disease or any non-COVID related illnesses we were there to sort of uh, man the fort and uh, to just handle the in the increase in um, in uh, like in patient census that we were uh, witnessing with uh, with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as someone that has n- never been to a, a hospital in, in his life as a patient, maybe once or I, I don't remember being in a hospital, uh, at least since I was born. Um, what, what are you doing? Are you moving people from, are you like plugging things into their arms? Can you like, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about when it comes yeah. to what happens in the hospital. What you want to know the the what machines are yes yes exactly what machines are you using are you operating um, what tools are you using what physical procedures are you doing so I, I could say at least on the you know I, I did not work in the ICU and and in the ICU you have sort of the heavy duty um, ventilators um, things like uh, BiPAP uh, CPAP which is like positive pressure. Um, oxygenation and, and air pressure, essentially um, putting air into the lungs when people cannot do that themselves. So that's sort of a whole different um, ball game that, you know, uh, we, um, you know, that, that I was not involved in, but on the general floor is before people get that sick, that they have to, um, that they go to that stage, you um, put people on like non-rebreather masks, different kinds of oxygen masks, just to up their oxygenation um and there's just a lot of monitoring of of vital signs um you know temperature blood pressure um o2 saturation those are really like the hallmarks of okay this person is stable versus this person is not and is probably going to deteriorate really quickly and is going to need an icu admission um, okay, so, so you, you yeah, kind of yeah. you do the a lot of this the procedures that let's say you're feeling sick and you go to the doctors. It's not necessarily even the hospital, but you go to the doctors and either they take your blood pressure, they take your temperature, uh, they do tests such as that. Um, maybe there's there's a needle involved. That's the kind of stuff that you're you're doing. Yeah, um, you know, a, a lot of it, uh, at least the floors that I was working on was fairly um, basic. Essentially um, doing a lot of blood tests to to monitor like inflammatory markers, um, 
and uh, blood counts, for example, because COVID is notorious now for being what we call like a, hy a hypercoagulable state. So it induces like blood clots very easily. And so, um, you know, by monitoring some of these blood tests, you could kind of um, catch things early um, before they, um, you know, be before they spiral out of control. So it's, it's a lot of uh, higher level triaging, essentially. And are you seeing patients that have already tested positive or are you seeing patients that are awaiting their test results? Yeah, um, I've, we see both. Um, we don't necessarily wait for uh, tests to come back, uh, either right. you know, positive or negative, before we give them a bed on the inpatient floor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in that case, if, if the test hasn't resulted yet, we have an isolation protocol so that you know patients who are uh, we, we call them under investigation. So if we have done a test uh, on them and we don't know the result yet we will treat them as if they are positive and we will sort of self-isolate them um, until uh, we, we know what the result is. Um, are, are you, um, are people in New York able to get tests uh, even if they're not experiencing symptoms? I mean, I, I know as a healthcare worker right now, I, you know, they did just recently send us an email saying that if we, if we did want to get asymptomatic testing, we could do that. I'm not yeah. sure citywide if that's if that's the case. I, I don't think we have the capacity to do that just yet. Right. Um, and if and if we do, then it hasn't really been communicated. Hmm. Um, you mentioned that's really like the, the most important thing to yeah. get the uh, testing and, and the contact tracing. You, really what we need. you mentioned that you. Um, you weren't uh, at the unit at kind of the height of the panic when uh, there were mm -hmm. there were not enough beds and they had to set up a hospital in Central Park. By the way, yeah. is is Central Park still a hospital? No, they they uh, took it down maybe um, a couple of weeks ago, okay. um, but it was associated with Mount Sinai and um, this agency called the Samaritans Purse which uh, there was some controversy regarding it because the the uh, you know leader the the organizer of that group um had very strict like conservative um viewpoints like anti uh lgbt and all this thing so there were there have been like actually a lot of protests outside of my hospital because we've been employing samaritan's purse um mm, wow. so that's been like a, an interest, interesting dynamic but Thing as of like last week, things have essentially gone back to normal. Um, we've got we've we're at like a quarter of the percent of COVID cases that we had at our peak. Um, and a quarter you know, percent, of, you said. Yeah, quarter. Yeah. Um, so, do you so think we're, at we're this rate, direction. at yeah. this rate, um, do you think that you'll be back to your normal job anytime soon? Uh, back to out of the the COVID ward. Yeah, uh, yeah. This this week was my my first week for that, and uh, it'll be interesting to see. You know, everybody's talking now about a second wave, and right. when is that going to come? And you know, uh, I, the good thing is that at least we've done it already once. You know, we've um, we've expanded the units, we've 
uh, deployed people from different departments. So we've kind of, you know, run the same, um, the same game plan already. So uh, we should be more prepared the next time. It's amazing how apt that analogy is of, of waves, because you think about when you wade into the ocean, you know, and you're like, first it's like, all right, I got to get this wet. You know, it's so cold. Ah, okay. Now it's my stomach. Now it's my, you know, my chest, then it's my shoulders. And, uh, that first wave is always the toughest because you haven't gotten wet yet. But then the second yeah. wave is you're used to it. I mean, <laughs> sorry, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm underplaying it. No, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm with that. Like it's all about exposure, you know, and, and getting, um, getting used to something that's uncomfortable and that you're not used to initially. Yeah. Um, well, you guys have a great attitude about it and, uh, I think I speak for everyone that doesn't know the first thing about medicine when we say, you know, thank God for people like you, you know, we, we applaud you. Um, you know, you're, you're a you. American hero, uh, and, and all your colleagues as well. Um, to extend the free association regarding waves a little bit, New York is opening up its beaches for Memorial day weekend. Um, how concerned are you? Um, or what just, let's just say like, let's take feelings out of it for a second. What effects do you think that will have on uh, cases uh, and mm-hmm. hospitalizations moving forward? Like, do you think this, the city, the state is ready for reopening uh, its beaches for summer? Mm-hmm. I think, um, there, mo- most parts of the state have achieved you know, the the criteria that the government, you know, that the state government laid out with uh, needing to reopen um, in terms of having fewer ICU admissions, having fewer cases in general, having fewer deaths. So the metrics are pointing to, uh, you know, to the fact that we are nearing, uh, you know, the phase where we can reopen, but there's no doubt that cases are, are gonna, they're gonna go up again. You know, we've seen that in every other country. We've seen that in Italy, South Korea, you know, you name it. So I think that's something that we're just gonna have to accept uh, as part of this particular um, pandemic. And right. you know, we gotta be as prepared as possible, but it's gonna happen. I think Pennsylvania, is you can open up when the number of cases go down for 14 straight days. It's different for different areas, but is that similar to what the New York criteria is? Yeah, I I think so. Something like that. I always go back to the idea that we had 15 cases and then that turned into one and a half million. So there are definitely at least 15 cases out there right now. (laughs) you know well over 15 so if 15 could turn into 1.5 million before we definitely have way more than 15 cases out there right now so why what would keep that from turning into another 1.5 million or or is the answer nothing's going to keep it from turning into 1.5 million but at a certain point you just there's nothing really you can do at a certain point, the virus runs out of you know hosts that it can, that it can spread to. Is um, that true though? What what is the, what are people saying uh, in the medical world in New York about the notion of herd immunity, about mm-hmm. about antibody testing as well? 
Um, yeah. So it's it's interesting that um, you know the data now is coming out from I think Sweden Sweden who they they went through this this herd immunity approach where they didn't really close down anything they didn't go through a shutdown um, but the you know the number that they found I think when they did the antibody testing was something like maybe seven point three percent of people had the antibodies which is nowhere close to the the amount of the percentage of people that you would want to have the antibodies. Um, you're looking at something like between 70 and 90 percent of of people who should um, be, you know, who should have the antibodies to, uh, to you know, before you even talk about herd immunity. Um, and to get to that level, it's still going to take at least, you know, 18 months to two years before that level of uh, of the population is going to have the antibodies. So, um, you know, when people say that we need a vaccine and that's really the going to be the game changer. Um, I, I think that that remains the case. I think that's still true. And how about uh, this this kind of new story that's that's started in in New York with kid COVID? Um, I think that the New York Times Daily did something on it this week, where kids who had the antibodies, so they've had coronavirus in the past and they've recovered, they're developing these these new strange symptoms. Um, so they didn't have any of the like the coughing fits that are associated with with adults getting getting COVID, but they had some other very strange life-threatening symptoms and the common denominator was they all tested positive for antibodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're talking about this COVID syndrome in children that's kind of like an atypical Kawasaki disease. Is that is that where you're referring to? I, I think it's it does have to do with the fact that the coronavirus infects uh the vasculature it infects the blood vessels and that's where that's where you get those weird symptoms of like hand swelling tongue swelling uh rash um really high fevers and you know the it, it is scary especially because now there's so many studies that are that are coming out now that are trying to figure out which ones are the vulnerable populations um but I, the consensus still is that you know, um, young people are still um, better off than uh, people with, you know, comorbid uh, conditions or the, the elderly. So it's, um, you know, you, you do have to take these studies, I think, with a, with a grain of salt and not be too alarmed by it, but just sort of be prepared. Yeah. Um, I just, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, that you can either answer now if you have an answer, or we can wait. We can move on to climate change and other uh, unrelated topics, and you can kind of mold this over, and then we can come back to it. But do you have? I, I expected you to put me on the spot. <laughs> do you have? Do you have a ready, illustrative, illustrative anecdote from being in the hospitals in New York City during the height of this pandemic? Um, that's that would kind of take us there and um you know really paint a picture of what what it's like and and just like some of the just unprecedented craziness heroism Mm -hmm. tragedy just Mm -hmm. what's going on there Mm -hmm. so i i didn't take care of um, any covid patients that ended up getting really really sick 
you know, uh, you hear stories about, um, you know, uh, providers like holding patients' hands, you know, as they ended up, uh, you know, crashing and, and um, you know, and, and dying essentially with only, only them by their bedside. Um, for me, when it really hit home was having, you know, a colleague of mine whose dad um, ended up getting really sick. Um, I, I don't think he had any like prior conditions that he, you know, um, he was a fairly healthy guy, um, really, you know, um, like vital, um, had a lot of vitality really. And he ended up getting sick and, and going into the ICU. And um, my friend was telling me how she had to sneak in um, hydroxychloroquine into the ICU because the doctors would not give it to him um, because of sort of the concern that it could have done more harm than good. And there was just, there's just a lot of chaos and confusion when you're dealing with uh, a pandemic of, of these proportions and everybody, the whole system is overworked. You have the, the residents overworked, you have the attendings who are, are not even, you know, many of these people have come from uh, years, decades of outpatient care. So they're leading teams um, and being in the hospital maybe for the first time in, in like 20 or 30 years. And, um, you know, and the patients get sick, you know, just like that, really at the, the drop of a hat. Um, and, and she was telling me that, you know, really the worst thing was that um, being in the ICU, you're prone to, you know, really losing it. You know, we call it delirium, ICU delirium. Um, so when you're, when you're ventilated, when you have these tubes, you know, in you, um, you're, you're not really lucid. And so you, your family who can't even go into the room to really be with you, um, you know, those few moments that maybe the patient is lucid, they'll have to, um, you know, talk to you to, um, you know, get, get things like, I don't know, your, your social security number. If, um, you know, if that's something that you have to sort of plan, if you're, if you're dealing with a family member who's going to, to pass away, you know? So it's just the the height the the heightened uh, emotions surrounding you know end of life when you can't even the family can't even be by your bedside it's um that was like the most heart wrenching thing i think mm, wow Ooh, thanks for for sharing that oh my yeah. god um hydroxychloroquine is what do you have an opinion on that do we do we know if that is a valid treatment or not? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it looks like it, the benefits really are not, uh, do not outweigh the risks. I mean, it doesn't, they're, they're, the studies with the most patients have shown minimal to no benefit from, um, or no benefit and um, no harm um, compared to placebo. The, the thing with hydroxychloroquine is that it, it can potentially have very negative side effects on the heart. It could precipitate like arrhythmias. Um, and and uh, one of the other medications that's frequently given with hydroxychloroquine is, is, um, another, um, is an antibiotic called azithromycin. And that has like augmenting uh, effects on, um, you know, negative, negative effects on the heart. So when I hear like Trump saying that he's just taking it on his own, 
without even um, having the coronavirus. And that, that was just crazy. Yeah, he doesn't even have, he's not even infected and he's taking the treatment drug. Mm-hmm. It's very yeah. odd. And he's morbidly obese per uh, Nancy Pelosi. So he shouldn't even be. Extremely odd. What about, my, this is my last coronavirus question, I promise. What about the idea that the, um, like that how sick you can get has to do with how much you're exposed to it almost. So instead of like just being like the flu where, um, you know, you get infected by a droplet and then you get you know, the worst of it. Um, it's almost more like alcohol poisoning where the more you drink, the sicker you get. Do you hear anything about that? Yeah, that, I, I heard about that more, more recently um, as a concept uh, to, to look into and, to me, it makes sense. You know, if you look at other viruses, uh, one of the, the things that you measure is, is viral load that's sort of in your body, and that tends to be a marker of how well your body is, uh, is producing a response against the virus. So it, it makes sense that the more uh, virus you're exposed to, sort of the, the greater the immune response that your body is going to be able to mount up. Um, because it's it's seeing the viral antigens more frequently, so it's producing more of uh, you know more white blood cells, more lymphocytes, and um, you know I I imagine that there there's more of a threshold um, in order to really get um, systemic antibodies. You, you need to have enough uh, white blood cells that actually come into to contact with the, the virus to be able to. Uh, you know, replicate and, you know, um, get those memory cells. That's really, you know, um, necessary to have a, a long lasting, you know, immunity. So. Um, before we move on, and now I promise for the second time that this will be the last coronavirus question. Is there any question that I should be asking you if I were a better host? What question would I have thought to ask you? Um, about your, you know, your work in, in the hospitals during this time? That's, I guess I'm that's just a great host. I, I've asked everything. He's speechless. I, I probably. I, uh, moving. I, okay, go on, go on. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think you, you pretty much <laughs> touched, on, touched on it all. Okay. All right. Well, if you think of something, you know, we're not precluded from, from moving back here. Um, but I, I want to pivot to to climate change because uh, that is the uh, that is the phenomenon that that brings us all together at the end of the day um, mm. uh, in solidarity uh, in existential solidarity. So I want to ask you, how did you used to talk about climate change um, just in your everyday life uh, among friends, colleagues, family? Um, how did you used to? discuss climate change did you at all um you know before this all started so Mm -hmm. i'll take you back to 2019 yeah i mean i never really thought about climate change extensively it was always like in spurts you know um if if it was somebody in my circle of friends who was you know really passionate about that and, and brought you know a certain topics up then you know I would get like super focused on it for like a very short period of time and then I would just sort of go back to 
worrying about you know what you know every whatever else you know is going on in the world um you know but i, I remember like the first person who um really got me thinking about climate change was you know back in college i don't know if you knew him um uh, daniel enking um no. he's a guy that he, now he's like the ceo of um, a company called everflux uh technologies uh which produces this kind of like liquid um plant uh, fertilizer this they call it like a plant juice um for you know things like sustainable agriculture um for um just improving the quality of, of compost and soil to reduce waste you know um so just seeing some of the things that he's uh done recently uh you know being updated with what, what he's putting out on facebook that just can you know um sort of keeps the the, the topic alive um but you know I, i've had I've, I've grown in and out of love with with uh thinking about climate change like through the years but it, it's always something that's on the back burner i guess Mm-hmm. So based on that answer to, to kind of generalize, would you say that the parts about climate change that you think more about are some of those solutions, like the one you just mentioned, rather than some of the catastrophes such as like hurricanes or famine? Like, do you think more about, you know, like uh, the sustainable you know, medicine that you just described? Or do you think about like, oh, shit, it's the end of days? I, I guess it depends how my my mood is that day. When I, if I'm in a in a like pessimistic mood, I'll think about the dire consequences and essentially shift to thinking about okay, like disaster, um, like mitigation versus you know thinking about all right, what what could I do today to to try to make a difference? You know, I think a big part of it now is sort of. Um, there's this level of guilt that I think people are rightfully feeling about feeling like they're not doing doing enough to um, to combat climate change, or you know, feeling like even the small actions, you know, the uh, you know, recycling or saving energy, um, you know, thinking that that's not enough, and and like feeling sort of a level of hopelessness or guilt about about that. Um, it's it's kind of in a in a funny way in, inspiring to me how uh, like little it seems that you really do think about climate change and worry about it. Like you said, like here and there, you know, you might catch an article or an idea or two, but it, it it's 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 an, it's interesting to hear that coming from you because um, you know for our listeners who who don't know Danny and I went to undergrad together we you know lived together for for a few years and and Danny you you know you're one of the most thoughtful people I've ever met in my life you know quite honestly um and I don't mean you're going to bring me roses you know on my birthday or anything like that <laughs> I just mean yes, like I just mean like you think yourself into circles like you like you overthink because you enjoy overthinking you know you think you think for, for recreational, you know, right. Um, yeah. Would you agree with that? That you're a recreational thinker? I do. I, I do think for fun. Actually, that's one of the, my favorites. <laughs> just, uh, and especially now that's sometimes I feel, it feels like that's the only thing that, that you could do. 
Um, but yeah, no, uh, I was just thinking how, how people deal with, um, with problems in their, in their lives. And, and there's some people who, um, you know, they'll kind of just sort of internalize it and just ruminate on it as, as a way to, to try to, um, solve it versus other people that will maybe take like different, um, different approaches. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I would definitely say that that's an accurate description. (laughs) And so the natural follow-up now is that, well, just to remind everyone, the previous question was, how did you think about climate change before the coronavirus? So how are you thinking about climate change now, I think for a lot of people, they, they're probably thinking about it less in a way, because it's almost like with the coronavirus, like the problems are here and it's so it's mm-hmm. immediate, it's short term. It's, it's what can we do about this? How can, how can we stay employed in this, in a world where there's no public gatherings, things of, of that nature? Um, but, but I don't, I don't know. Um, how has, how has uh, this pandemic changed how you think about climate change and the long-term future i found myself actually thinking about it more uh just because this pandemic has kind of framed um uh, how how global problems really require like any an excessive amount of coordination that we are not capable of at the moment um, about you know people of different um, you know with different belief structures that have different political beliefs, um, different ways of looking at the world. You know the only way to solve different ways of reporting data. Yeah, different ways of reporting data. We don't know what's true. You know. Yeah. Like ima- yeah, imagine, when- I was thinking with with this kid coronavirus thing, like we had just taken the data from China and figured that okay, it doesn't look like it affects kids. So we, you know, we let our kids play with each other and then we have to, we're not, we're just like a lot, we're a lot less worried about our kids than we are about seniors. But now it's almost like, well, wait a minute. Um, so there's, uh, but I, I think I, I feel like I interrupted you. Um, but that's interesting that you think about climate change now more because this is almost like a test run for a global coordination it's it's a test run but we're also dealing with both huge issues at the same time Mm. and so the the consequences the effects of it are they're compounding um you know i I and i think even in uh in india and bangladesh there's a uh a storm brewing that i'm not sure if it hit yet or if, if it's about to hit um but it's supposed to bring some of the you know the worst flooding that the region has seen and they're in the midst of, you know, rising coronavirus cases. So they're like two um, huge problems that are kind of, um, you know, hitting people at the same time. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about how in the fall we have hurricane season here in America. And, you know, it just seems like there's, all, there's always stadiums full of displaced people. Um, and how do you socially distance when you have to, you know, pack a stadium for a temporary shelter? 
Exactly. Yeah. If, you, if your home gets uh, gets you know destroyed, you know people are just going to be either crowding together in stadiums or just uh, being being on the street. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so now that we're on climate change officially, um, I asked my my brother this question as well because he's a, a psychologist and you're and you're a psychiatrist, but. Um, one of one of the the terms uh, that gets uh, slammed associated with climate change and and mental health is is eco anxiety. It's this um, concern about this, the future. It's uh, uncertainty, intolerance is a is a phenomenon. Um, how do you? How, what would you say to someone if if they came to you with eco anxiety? Um, you know, or do you? What would you say to me? Because I obviously have eco-anxiety. That's why I, I do this podcast. I'm using you as my therapist right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, Danny, Danny, I am worried about the future, and it's distracting me from my everyday work. What do I do? Well, first, I'm, I'm glad that you finally uh, sought some help. Thank you. I think that's that's the first step. No, I mean, um, I tend to to conceptualize it sort of. Uh, I, I extrapolate like um, in, in the, like individual change, um, which is really what um, can form like the um, like a model for how we need to change as a society. You know, so. Um, one of the approaches that you could talk about with climate change is just having like a bottom up approach where everybody needs to sort of change their status quo, you know, change their habits um, around energy conservation uh, regarding, you know, recycling. And that is, you know, if everybody were to do that, um, that would actually make a significant contribution. Um, but the problem is people um, are, you know, uh, we're creatures of habit. And so we've gotten used to not really doing the right thing or the responsible thing. Um, right. and so it, from, you know, from a psychological perspective, you could talk about how do we change habits? Right. And, um, I think you, you, you know, mentioning eco-anxiety that comes from the fact that you're focusing on such a big problem that, that it seems like insurmountable. And so when, when, if you're focusing so much on the fact that um, you know global temperatures are rising, um, you know catastrophe seems inevitable. Then you get sort of flooded with this sense of you know oh what's the point? You get flooded with this sort of nihilism, and that just uh, lends you know leads itself to an action. So I would say focus on the small victories, um, and I guess we'll talk about you know the Jonathan Franzen article a little bit later. But he says the same thing about focusing on what's like in your immediate proximity. Focus on what you can do locally, and um, because the only way that people will change is if um, they could derive meaning from what they're doing. And you know, um, the, the way to do that is to, to you know start um, you know close in to start with what you have around you. Yeah, let's talk about this article now. Um, so this is by Jonathan Franzen. He's the author, Danny and I. I, I sent this to you to discuss because I know we're both uh, literature 
Geeks. Um, so this is called What If We Stop Pretending by uh, September 8th of, of last year, 2019. Um, the, the, the subtitle is the, the climate apocalypse is, cl- is coming. To prepare for it, we need to admit that we can't uh, prevent it. Um, so... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just start, I think, for our listeners. To me, the, the thesis was that was this line where he says, you know, you can, he basically laid it out how dire everything is. Uh, we're not going to stop two degrees. There's going to be catastrophe. Um, but not all is lost. I think his thesis was that you can keep on hoping that catastrophe is, catastrophe is preventable and feel ever more frustrated or enraged by the world's inaction, or you can accept that disaster is coming and begin to rethink what it means to have hope. So he's not saying that there's no hope, but he is saying that we have to rethink what it means to have hope. And part of that is what you were just describing before, Danny, where we can take care of our smaller domains, um, whether it is just preserving a, you know, a, place, a place we love or contributing to just a, a small making a small se- uh, section of, uh, of of the world a little a little better um so that was one of the things he was saying um and uh i'll go through it i kind of highlighted towards the end uh three main points three main cases for why we shouldn't just become nihilist um one is that Although catastrophe is inevitable, basically, to delay the inevitable is still a worthy cause in and of itself. That even if we reduce emit carbon emissions, uh, so not not enough to prevent the worst, but enough to delay the worst, that's still a worthy cause because we get to. We use the analogy of like throwing a party. The cops are going to bust this party, but. Hey, better that they busted at 3 a.m. rather than 1 a.m. Get another couple hours in, right? So to yeah. delay the inevitable is a worthy cause. Um, the next is is ethics. And I thought this was kind of interesting because I didn't expect it to come from Franzen. Um, but he, uh, he evoked the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. Um, and he said, uh, during the Protestant Reformation, when end times was merely an idea, not the horribly concrete thing it is today, a key doctrinal question was whether you should perform good works because it will get you into heaven or whether you should perform good works simply because they're good. Because while heaven is a question mark, you know that this world would be better if everyone performed them. So it's almost like a, a matter of utility and logic. So that's the second one, and then the third one, um, I think the third kind of a, a reason to is, is that um, there are problems that are worthy of being solved beyond climate, like beyond just like energy transition or whatnot. That um, even like preserving functioning democracies can be perceived as climate action because as as we see with you know, coronavirus, like. Part of the reason that the U.S. Is, has the most cases in the world by far might be a function of us not having the best democracy at the moment <laughs> or the best and strongest institutions. So, you know, having like elect, electing 
capable uh, leaders um, and, and having strong uh, institutions um, can be considered a meaningful climate action. Um, so combating wealth inequality, right? Because that allows, uh, if, if people need to stay at home from work and, and get furloughed, then they can, they can afford to take a, a, a few months off and uh, protect uh, their health and uh, protect society uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so sorry, that was just a kind of a purge, but I wanted to just kind of mm-hmm. get to the listeners, some of my takeaways so that they know what we're talking about. Um, do you have a reaction to, to any, any of, uh, yeah, you, read? you know, I, um, that struck, that struck me as well when he was kind of uh, equating, um, he, he says any movement toward a more just and civil society, uh, can now be considered a meaningful climate action. And so he, like you said, um, doing things like, uh, creating more fair elections, um, shutting down, you know, hate machines on social media, racial and gender equality, um, you know, respect for laws and their enforcement. So pretty much it, it reframes um, the, the importance of actually working towards a, a better uh, community for, for everybody, you know. So um, and saying that those repercussions are, are going to be important, like in the long term, not just uh, politically, not just economically, but it's going to have a, a wider effect on, um, you know, on uh, the ecology and, and just on, on climate change in general. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I really also, you know, resonated with the fact that, you know, the importance of doing something good, not for the outcome, not for the reward, but just because there's an inherent, like, good, um, there, there's an inherent uh, moral um directive to to do what is right because it's you know it it improves your life but it also improves everybody's uh everybody else around you whose whose life you know you you impact and i don't think there's anything that's more meaningful or valuable than being able to um you know change your own life and and those uh, of the people who who you're you're close to because that's really all we can do or all we could really strive for um, or what most people can strive for, you know. And before we give Jonathan Franzen too much credit here, uh, let's acknowledge that that he he's he's adapting these ideas to to climate change very well and eloquently. But these are not his his ideas, uh, uh, and I don't think he would even he would say that either. But um, yeah, that idea of just kind of being good for the sake of being good is there's the uh, um, a sect of Judaism. Uh, Kabbalism that talks about infinite goodness that every time you're good, you're contributing to the overall goodness of the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also the idea of how, um, you know, uh, functioning, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, um, securing fair elections can be considered a climate action, combating extreme wealth inequality is a climate action. Um, There's a professor at Tufts, uh, actually, our alma mater um, and an urban planner, uh, Julian Agumon, and he has a, a concept that he coined called just sustainability. So instead of um, sustainability is typically seen as an environmental uh, thing, um, you know, net zero emissions, 
um, things of, of that nature. Um, but just sustainability is sustainable communities um, and building uh, societies that are resilient when, when crisis strikes, like you can rely on your, your neighbors and there are strong bonds there. So you don't eat each other alive like, like you're in Cormac McCarthy's The Road and you help each other out, you know, like so many people are doing right now during this uh, pandemic. Yeah, it kind of it, it strips uh, people, I guess, to the most fundamental like core values and, and, and virtues. Um, you know, I, I think as civil, civilization has continued to to grow and and evolve, you know, there's layers upon layers of political, economic, uh, technological advancements. But at, at the core, you know, what makes a good life? still you know those same principles that applied to the ancient greeks to you know socrates and and you know the ancient philosophers though those still exist today you know it's the sort of the basic human um principles and i think when we're faced with like huge challenges like this it kind of reminds people of that um yeah so that we That's... can return to them yeah i like that you brought brought up the greeks too i just um, when, when I read old, uh, old literature like that, like, uh, you know, Don Quixote, the Greeks, what, whatever, um, my takeaway is always that people centuries ago, millennium ago, were just as smart and thoughtful as we are now. So like as civilization has quote unquote progressed, like I would, I would say that like, as a species, we're no more really thoughtful or even, you know, uh, intellectual at our most intellectual as we ever we're were. Intelligent, you know? Yeah, we have more uh, cumulative knowledge, but we don't necessarily apply that knowledge as, as well as or, or better than previous, you know, civilizations. But even that, do we have that, do we have more accumulated knowledge? Like, Maybe we know like random f facts, you know, that you can find on Wikipedia or that you can ask Google about, but like, we, do we know how to get food from the earth? <laughs> you know, like while, while you and I might know more about, you know, how many stars are in the galaxy um, or we might know, you know, the molecular structure of an atom or what, I don't, I don't fucking know. But, um, mm -hmm. like, we don't know how to, like, fucking get food from the earth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, like, like, we don't have as, um, you know, intimate a knowledge of, like, the, um, you know, how the, the moon affects the growth of crops or, you know, sort of these larger kind of uh, relationships that, you know, the, the ancient Egyptians, like, were super good at right. when it comes to, like, agriculture and stuff. Yeah, I mean we're really good at manipulating tools, you know, and creating tools to improve our, our lives. But it's like, it, it's the same issue with, uh, you know, we have iPhones now that are computers and, uh, you know, we grew up with like super fancy calculators, but are we, and are, are kids nowadays better at math than they used to before the calculators? You know, probably not, probably worse. You know, I, I think our, most people's memories, I think have been negatively affected by having, so many like devices that could remember for you. Um, right. So, yeah. Right. Like the ancient astronomers, they could, 
the, the amount of things that they could know just with basic fucking sticks, you know, sticks and stones. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we need satellites orbiting the earth to, to do, do what they did with sticks and stones. Right. And, and now I, I can't even. So who's know, more intelligent? Uh, I can't even go into my car and, and drive like for a half hour without needing my GPS for, for, um, for some destination or other. It's like, yeah, we become too dependent on it now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some fascinating questions there. Um, uh, Danny, before you, uh, you came on this program, I'd asked if there were any, uh, topics that you wanted to talk about specifically. Um, and, uh, you gave me three, you said, uh, we could talk about the, the evolution of spirituality versus atheism. I think that's awfully intriguing. And I'd like to know what you mean by that. Um, you mentioned anti-intellectualist trends. I think that's also awfully intriguing. And I'd also like to know what you mean by that. Uh, and you talked about uh, the American obsession with with winning, um, and I'd like to know what what you mean by that. Um, at this moment of the program, do I, which of those three are you are you would you do you want to go into right now? Like, which of those three are you most interested in? I guess right now that the first two topics, uh, in a way, they're kind of uh, related in the sense that. And it's related to climate change, too, when you're talking about um, what motivates people to change and to improve their lives. And, you know, what does it mean to live uh, an, an examined life? And um, for, for most people, you know, that motivation, um, you know, what people strive for ends up being something analogous to a, a spiritual motive or a religious motive right it's something uh greater than than yourself and you know i i know um in previous you know previous centuries when when religion had a much stronger foothold in people's lives there, there was just a totally different like you like moral code that existed in society and, and people in a, in a way could kind of agree on certain um you know certain rules certain like ethical codes because they had a similar compass and that compass you know had to do with you know there was a god you know there was a truth um and that there was a path to to attain that and you know i'm wondering now you know just what i'm seeing politically and sort of this complacency with um changing you know individual action and, and doing what we need to do for a larger cause you know for the, the cause of um of the earth really essentially i, I wonder if that's because we're lacking, um, you know, sort of a, a communal sort of spiritual sense, something greater than ourselves. Um, and, and so that's sort of how I, I came to sort of think about that um, as a topic. To, to, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So you're saying that maybe like the climate movement doesn't have like a, a, a kind of a character that can be put up as an ideal or it it doesn't have like there's no moral compass really of how to act whereas like religion be like oh you've got to be like jesus or you can pray to a god is that right. I, I don't think that's what, exactly what you're saying yeah. in a way i mean um if you accept that the apocalypse is coming right 
Mm -hmm. People who are, who have more of a religious bent and are able to incorporate that apocalypse into their religious narrative, they, they would be able to be like, okay, you know, um, this is what I believe, you know, and, uh, the doomsday is coming, the apocalypse is coming, and these are the actions I need to take that are, um, you know, told to me by God or told to, to my people by God. And it, it's a way to force people to take action, you know, because there's, there's less of this uncertainty, right? There's less of this, oh, like, I, I don't know what, what's going to work. I don't know what's really true. I don't know if climate change is even true or not. If it's if it's all like blown out of proportion, um, you know, with with re with religion, you have yeah you have more of a dogma, but you also have less uncertainty, right? Um, so I think if if there was a way from an on an individual level that people could sort of re recapture that kind of compass, it, it would make it would make it a lot easier for everybody to change uh, their individual habits, um, which is really, you know, when you, when you come right down to it, that's what needs to change. Like people need to change. Individuals need to, need to, need to change. Yeah. I think one of the problems too with climate change, when you think about religion, the obvious story that people always just go to intuitively is Noah's Ark. And similar stories of the flood because they exist in almost every religion. There's stories of flood in, you know, in, in Chinese, ancient Chinese philosophy and in Hindi and in Gilgamesh, everything. Um, stories of the flood. And the, and the problem with that is people always identify with Noah. They always identify with their survivor. So they think that climate change is going to come. And it's going to wipe out all the sinners. But me, I am a true believer. I talk to God and I will, I will be saved. And I think that that's a problem. And there needs to be another story. And I don't know that this story exists, but it's the story of God telling humanity, you're fucking up. If you can do these things, you'll be spared. And then humanity does those things and they're spared. That story hasn't been written yet, or I don't know a story like that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yeah. And Francis was talking about how, you know, you could even write a story where God tells you to do certain things and you do them and you're, and you're not spared, right? Because. Right. It's, um, you know, the apocalypse is coming and it doesn't matter what the outcome is, but there is value in just doing the right things, even if God doesn't spare you. Um, mm. And that's, that's the hardest thing, I think, for, for people to get around, you know, to, yeah. um, to actually internalizing and believing. My, my story for hope that I've kind of clutched on to the last couple of years um, is the story of the Titanic um, where as the ship was sinking, like the band played on. And I thought that that's such a kind of a powerful action um, and very inspiring. 
Right. Um, you know, it's like yeah. play music means to just do the right thing, even if the world's collapsing around you. Like if you're going to go down, go down swinging. If you're going to go down, like go down do it, doing good and treating people well and doing the right thing. That, um, yeah. And, and the question that, you know, you could ask the, those, um, those musicians is like how, you know, you, you could have that mindset that, you know, you know that things are, are going to go downhill and that, you know, the ending is going to be bad and that you should be doing the right thing. But how do you get you, how do you, how do you focus on the right thing when you have chaos and catastrophe around you? Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that people talk about is, um, you know, being mindful, uh, being, you know, being present, um, trying to stay away from uh, worrying too much about the future and just sort of focus on the here and now, like people tout that as sort of like the, the, the answer to everything, right. Is, is to like be present. And, and even in, in the, in the last dance and in the last episode, yeah. I, I found, I found that it was pretty funny how they focused on, on that, that, you know, the key to Jordan's greatness was the fact that he could be <laughs> so present. present. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and his, uh, his connection to the Zen master, Phil Jackson, it's all about just kind of like this sort of Buddhist philosophy, being present, being in the moment. Mm -hmm. Don't, you know, don't worry. What did he say about like, w why would you worry about missing a shot you haven't taken yet? Mm -hmm. That's an amazing yeah. quote about just being present. Like, why are you th even thinking about the negative outcome when that hasn't even, you haven't even been there. And that's such like a kind of a unique take on things. Cause I think mm -hmm. everybody like me, it's like, when you think about something, you think it's very outcome oriented. It's, it's, it's going to work or it's not going to work. So just to eliminate the possibility of something not working, it's pretty amazing. That's a pretty amazing idea. Yeah. You know? Yeah, then, if you yeah. worry, it's pretty much. There's no point in in worrying at all because it's really, um, you're cutting your legs from under you. You know, it's uh, it's something that hasn't happened yet. You're just projecting into a, a future that doesn't exist, um, and so it's just a, a hindrance if you if you if you rely on that. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the last dance now. I assume you've watched all eight episodes, ten episodes of that. All ten, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you remember like Michael Jordan from growing up? I mean, you're, we're the same age, so we're about 10 in the last dance season, mm -hmm. maybe nine or 10. Um, do you remember that, that 97, 98 finals Bulls versus Jazz? The last thing I remember in person, I think was the summer, the summer of 98 where, um, yeah, this was in, uh, yeah, I was still in elementary school. And I, I remember seeing some of my classmates walking around with a Bulls, like, title, uh, you know, T-shirt. And it had, like, the six um, um, O'Brien trophies. And I remember, like, that sticking out to me. I'm like, damn, like, this team, the Bulls, I don't even know who they are. They have six championships like like though they must be like super good so like that was the first image that i had in my mind of like this uh this dynasty um yeah. but i don't remember actually watching any um 
Bulls games or watching Michael Jordan like during the 90s. But when he came back as a Washington Wizard, that's when I actually um, I got like like real into um, like following uh, how he did with the Wizards, and um, ended up like buying a uh, a Jordan Ultimate DVD collection. I had like all of those like documentaries together, like Come Fly with Me and and all of those. Um, so, so in a way that sort of primed me to to this documentary. That's funny. So were you let down by his Wizards tenure? Was it was like was it like that that the Messiah is coming down and he's like a major disappointment? Not, I mean, if you check his stats, I mean, he was still averaging like twenty four some twenty four points, like six rebounds, six assists yeah. at like age forty, yeah. um, which is like comparable to like really great players today. Like those are the same stats. So um, it, it was not what you would really expect from what he did back in the nineties, but uh, it was still sort of cool to catch the tail end of it. Cool. Yeah. I, I got a, a, I was a step ahead of you on that because I learned about Jordan after his first retirement, I was really young, probably five years old. And so to me, he had this mythical figure about like being the greatest player of all time. Um, and then he came back in 1995, 1996 so he was the best player in the world. He came back was like, all right, let's see who, you know, if he's really the best. And then he won three straight championships and then mm-hmm. retired again with that ultimate mic drop. It was like, oh God, okay. All right, God, you know, he lived up to his name. Yeah, and we found out that, you know, if, if Phil Jackson was on board, they, they would have came back and probably uh, stayed together for maybe another two seasons. They could have got seven or eight. Maybe. yeah well what's what are you doing now now that the last dance is over um what are you watching what are you reading what are you looking forward to what are you doing to just dis- distract yourself maybe not maybe distracts a wrong word but what are you doing to stay let's say stay present and stay enjoying life you know amid all this madness i well, i found myself I guess taking more more walks than I usually have. Um, I mean, I've been to Central Park more in, in the past few weeks than I had been, you know, uh, any time previously. Um, so th- there is this kind of rebound effect where you know everybody's been cooped up for so long that they're like reappreciating what it's like just to be outside and like enjoying the city, you know, um, especially when it's kind of more quiet than usual. Is Central uh, so Park more or less crowded than usual? Maybe a little bit less than, uh, you know, the weekends of, you know, what it was a few years ago. But I was surprised by how many people there still were walking around Central Park, um, you know, still doing their picnic things, still doing, you know, their Frisbees and stuff. So, um, hmm. yeah. Where else are you walking? Are you taking, you're not taking public transportation, are you? No, luckily I, I'm just a 10 minute walk to the hospital from where I live. So I, I haven't needed to take public transportation, but I, I, I'm also like a stone's throw from, uh, from the East river. Mm-hmm. And there's a pretty nice like uh, running path that goes down there. So I've been uh, running a little bit more, um, 
kind of, uh, you know, expending that, uh, that pent up energy. Have you been to Brooklyn since March? That's a good, no, I, I don't think I have. No. You have, you left Manhattan for anything? No. I, I did take, uh, or I drove back with my sister to Long Island uh, and I saw my parents for like the first time last week for, um, for Mother's Day and, and my mom's birthday. Uh, so you went in with their house and were you socially distanced, even though you're, you're working in a hospital yeah. uh, in New York, you went into their house and they were cool with that? Yeah, they were. It, it's, it's that sort of thing where I think we had a mutual kind of agreement that like, you know, we, we can't just continue to, um, to not, you know, live our lives. And, you know, obviously I haven't been sick. I haven't felt any symptoms, um, for the past few weeks. I, you know, um, I've minimized my exposure as much as possible. So I think, you know, we were all on, on the same page, like, um, you know, let's just, uh, try it, you know, and, um, and just deal with whatever happens kind of. Yeah. Hmm. That's cool to hear. You know, my mom, my mom lives in Philadelphia here, but I haven't gone to her apartment yet and I'll go for walks with her and we'll stay, you know, six feet apart, wear masks. Um, mm-hmm. Just cause I'm nervous. It's like people in their sixties. So, but you, but you know, if you, if you did it and you work in the hospitals, I'm working from home. Mm-hmm. You know, that gives me a little more confidence that I might be able to do that with a clear conscience. Yeah. Uh, but then if she gets sick, I'm coming for you, man. Yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't be good, good doctor advice. Um, yeah. All right. Before I let you go, I want to ask you a couple questions. I call this segment Danny Wonders. And these are, uh, I think, so I'm, I'm going to sh- ask you a question that I think you would ask me. Maybe I've asked you, or maybe you've asked me before. Maybe I've asked you before, but we're going to just revisit these and uh, just see if you have a fresh take on them. Fresh perspective, yeah. So, Danny Santa, what came first, the circle or the sun? Oof, tough one, tough one. I'm going to have, I, I'm always make, make, have to it, make a case for each of them. Make a case for each of them before you tell us your oh. answer and make a case for each of them. Uh, my gut would, would be to say the circle came first because as a as an abstract shape um you know a tonic uh ideal right where you have this this image of of a circle and, and there's the concept versus this um actual you know solid entity this, this this actual object that's out there um so you could say that the the idea um can exist before the actual object, but then the, the opposite would be, you know, where did you get the idea if you didn't see it somewhere in real life first, right? Um, and so um, would, would like ancient people, uh, ancient civilizations have been able to talk about a circle if there weren't any circular objects in their environment? Um, you know, it's, yeah. But I, my, I, I got to lean towards, um, towards you know the abstract object sort of existing independently first. You know? so, so just to clarify, what's your answer? The, the circle. The circle came the circle. first? 
That yeah. is crazy. Because my, my follow-up question, I thought you were going to say the sun. Because without the sun, there's no people to, you know, project geometric shapes onto objects. Mm-hmm. But, but um, I was going to ask, like, do circles even exist? Because we live in a three-dimensional universe. Or as, mm-hmm. as we, you know, what we perceive to be a three-dimensional universe. So do circles exist? The sun is not a circle. Sun, sun is spherical. Um, right. And everything that we think of as two-dimensional is not really two-dimensional. It's just projected as such. Even if you see a, a circle on a screen, it's really the, the pixels, they have a width to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess in my mind, I was thinking more just circular, like not a perfect <laughs> circle, but just circular as a, as a generalization. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, if there was no sun and uh, there were no people, um, you would still have, I guess, like constellations of, of galaxies that cluster due to gravity in some sort of circular spherical, you know, fashion. Um, okay. So you're, you're equating circles with circular. (laughs) Circular. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. There's a big difference (laughs) because my face is circular but it's not a circle right but i mean if um if i were to you know break if i had to draw you for example um i would start with with doing just like an oval and then uh sort of building on top of that so <laughs> everybody any, anything could be reduced to uh to its elements but is a circle a proper element because if you had let's say you drew a circle on a piece of paper because you were going to draw me or you're going to draw the sun or anything else. That piece of paper also has a width. It's very small compared to its length and height, but there's still a width. The mm. lead that you put on the paper is also very, is very, there's not a, it's not that wide or that much higher than the so paper, that, but it that, still exists. Um, there's still a yeah. distance there. It's still three dimensional. Yeah. Um, all right. Next question, because <laughs> I think that agree to disagree on this one. Um, which came first, the use of wood for fire or the use of wood for shelter? I think this one is more clear cut for me, and so I'm, I'm interested to see where you're going to fall on this. But I think for fire definitely first um because when i think of like primal needs and just basic uh needs that that humans have um you know if you build a fire you could get um you know you could cook food with it but you could also get heat uh you know you could uh just feel you know warm um and just regulate your your body temperature and whereas you could probably fashion something else um, for for a shelter without needing necessarily wood. Um, you could find, you know, some some lean to, some like cave, obviously. My uh, the counter argument is that um, a shelter can also keep you warm because you can stay dry, and you know, rain is can can give you can make you colder, um, mm-hmm. and that instead of using a fire to cook meat, you could just, you could have a shelter to keep you dry and then you could forage for, for berries or, 
or you could uh, scavenge. Maybe we we're even eating, uh, you know, raw meat back in the day. Yeah. Do you feel like it was it was easier to use? It's easier to use wood for uh, to create like a. Um, for sure. I think it's easier to. Yeah. Yes, I think it's easier to use wood to create shelter because to make a fire you need something else. You don't just need wood, but you need you need you need a spark. You need flint. You need technique. You need like some kind of you need you can't just I if I was in the woods, it would be easier for me to build a shelter than a fire. Mm-hmm. And you feel like the first fire uh was sort of uh created uh or or you think the first fire was created or it was found you know and and then sort of uh re repurposed into like a personal usage you know like like a, maybe a, a lightning strike or a brush fire or forest fire and then um people were able to just like um you know use that as a stepping stone to create yeah i think it was it was found um but i think it's also a lot more complex than that you're right because like at a certain point that you know the discovery of fire it's one thing to find it but i think when people talk about the discovery of fire they mean the idea that you can start a fire without a lightning bolt and without without things that you can't control um, you can just start a fire with things that only you can control. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a true, that's a real question. And I feel like we had shelters first, but maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Danny, it's, it's getting late, but I want to give you the, uh, the last word. Um, do you, have you been able to think of any questions that I should have asked you? During this conversation, were I a better podcast host? Um, let's see. You could ask me how, how do we how do we combat COVID? Did you, did you, thank you, thank I, you. That's a great. That's a fantastic question. What do we do? How do we combat? How do we combat COVID, Danny? That's a really good um, question. Good idea. Well, uh, wash your hands, stay at home. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, there's <laughs> pretty much that's the extent of our science right now is doing uh, sort of the basic things. And the problem is that it's an, it's, it is a novel virus. And so we're spending most of our time right now just trying to figure out what kind of virus it is and what it does. Um, and really the, the best thing would be uh, to, like you had mentioned before, being comfortable with uncertainty and having a, a level of, uh, I guess, what, what Keats called negative capability. So like the, the capacity to kind of be in that, um, that uh, space of uncertainty without stri- you know, needing to strive for answers necessarily. Um, and I, th- I think, Probably that's that's the best advice I could give. Aside from philosophy, is there a medical treatment that you found to be effective from your experience in New York City hospitals? 
they're, they're using an antiviral um, remdesivir, which does has shown a, a more promise than hydroxychloroquine has. Um, I, I read just the other day that um, people who had higher vitamin D levels in their blood had a, a lower uh, risk of serious uh, illness, or at least there was a correlation between those people who had, um, you know, maybe were admitted to the ICU and had very serious illness. Those people had uh, lower vitamin D levels. So who knows? I, you know, maybe it's time to stock up on uh, on your vitamins. Yeah, I got the orange juice I got the other day had calcium and vitamin D in it. Um, what are you What are you uh, wearing to the hospitals? Are you wearing like what kind of mask are you wearing? What kind of gloves? Like what is your what is your uh, your armor? We're, so everybody in the hospital now is essentially allowed to to wear scrubs, you know. Whereas uh, usually, you know, people who wore scrubs were like maybe people in the emergency room or in certain like areas of the hospital. Um, now, pretty much everybody is is doing it, and and they've uh, supplied the hospital with more scrub machines so that we could, uh, you know walk in and, and change um, before we work and then uh, change out of our scrubs when we go back home so we, we don't like infect our homes uh, with uh, you know possible corona so mm -hmm. um, and your your yeah. mask is it a typical mask that you like what what is your what are you are you cover how are you covering your face so when I'm just walking around the hospital or on the unit in general I'm, I'm wearing an, a regular surgical mask um, that it, you know protects against droplets, uh, but it doesn't protect against um, airborne um, like particulates and, and, and viruses, uh, and that's what you would need the N95 for. So if I'm if I'm working with or um, interacting with a person who I know is COVID positive, then I'm going to add the N95 um, or, or um, you know, replace the surgical mask with my N95 mask. But other than that, it's, uh, yeah, everybody's wearing masks. Wow. Um, are we testing enough? Um, and if so, what more needs to be done before, let's say, restaurants and bars can open in New York City? What needs to happen? What thresholds need to be met? Mm. We're probably, I mean, if we're using the epidemiological data from like the, the main uh, like scientific institutions that, that study this, we are not testing enough. Uh, you know, they were throwing around figures like 5 million tests a day um, nationwide, uh, you know, so that we could build up that database and, you know, use contact tracing to, to better figure out, you know, how we're containing this. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think I have noticed that testing is ramping up. Um, it's more available now, at least to healthcare professionals. So if I wanted to, I could, you know, go in tomorrow and uh, get tested. Um, they're offering antibody tests now as well. Um, and in terms of like the threshold numbers, I'm not 100% sure. Um, I, I, th I did see something like... Uh, you know, they want to make sure that the hospitals now have more capacity. Um, so that they want to make sure that uh, we fall under, that 
Um, for example, ICUs have uh, 30% um, availability to accommodate more patients. So if we could fall underneath that um, in our ICUs and our hospitals, that would mean that like, yeah, we could accommodate a second wave potentially. And I think that's where we're gonna have to try to prepare ourselves is not to like necessarily uh, drop the cases down to zero, but just control it enough so that we can um, you know, buffer the second wave that is you know, for sure to come. Um, before you go, give me two predictions. Number one, when do restaurants open for dining in New York City? And number two, when do you think we'll get a vaccine? <laughs> These are the uh, two biggest can... questions I think that people have. Uh, should, are we are we throwing uh, we're throwing money on this or, or what? Um, I, I just want I just. We're just looking for, you know, hope in the areas that we can control. And I know that you can control both these things. <laughs> uh, so for restaurants and gyms, I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say uh, August, August 20th. So towards the Re end of August. Restaurants in New York, August 20th. Okay. Oh, New York City. Um, yeah, New York City. Let's see. Uh, let's make that September first. September first. Okay. Yeah. Labor Day weekend. It, it's, it's a good date. It's a good. I, I know. Uh, I know Trump likes uh, his. You know, dates that that look uh, look nice and round. So, yeah. Before the election, yeah. for sure. <laughs> you know he's gonna control like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Vaccine. Vaccine. I'm gonna say. Uh, February 15th of, of next year. Okay. Valentine's day, just about. Um, and how are how are you feeling lastly? Like, have you gotten tested for antibodies or for COVID and how are you feeling? I, I have, I haven't gotten tested for either. Um, I haven't really developed any symptoms and, and actually interestingly enough, all of my co-residents and colleagues who have gotten tested for the antibodies, uh, almost all of them, were were negative, you know. Even people who were symptomatic or had, you know, fairly notable symptoms, they uh, they you know didn't have detectable antibodies. So I, I figured, um, you know, so it's bizarre. it's open to me if I want to, but um, I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll rethink about it. But right now, I, I'm not necessarily itching to to find out. Yeah, and your family, your you know, people you know. Is everyone is it okay? Yeah, everybody's good. Yeah, yeah. We gotta count Same count our you. blessings where we got them. Yeah, people I know are doing well. You know, um, but it, it's such a such a strange such a strange time. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm glad we were able to catch yeah, it, up. It would have allowed us to at least do this virtually. <laughs> yeah, that's I, true. I would have come down to Philly, you know, either way, but. At least this way, you know, we were able to set a date and...